Okay, Jesse, I don't think I will ever be able to look at lemon lime Gatorade the same. What's the story this time? A toxic marriage leads to the disappearance of one of the spouses. When a body is found months later, a manhunt across the United States takes place to track down the guilty party. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about wild tales, long cons, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, pretty please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Thanks, you guys, so much for this week. Cannot wait to see your reviews next week. Also, if you're interested in supporting us and the show in a more direct way, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support and all of the goodies that you get as a result. It's really fun. Yeah, super fun. And we'll probably talk about Patreon a little bit more at the end of this episode about some of the upcoming things we have going on. Speaking of Patreon, we are honored to welcome a couple new patrons. We want to thank and give a shout out to Sharon B., Tabitha G., and AP. Thank you guys so much. Like I said, we will talk about some Patreon stuff at the end of the episode, but I think it is time to get to this week's love murder, Andrea. (laughs) Let's do it, Jessica. 72-year-old Gregory Whelan was going down to feed the horses in the dark pre-dawn hours of September 11th, 2001, in the city of Industry, California. He always fed the horses at 5 a.m., the horses expected it, and it made no difference whether they were at home in his barn or here in another, preparing for another day of the Pacific Quarter Horse Classic. He was used to being up at this hour, though he hardly expected anyone else to be, and was surprised to see one of his clients, a slim, tall, 30-something brunette named Elisa McNabney, approaching him. You won't believe what's happened, she said. Larry's gone. Larry was Elisa's 52-year-old husband. Gone? Where the hell did he go? Elisa sighed. Well, he left last night. We had a fight, and he took off. He's going back to the cult. (gasps) The cult? What cult? That certainly sounded like a strange place for a successful attorney whose passion was showing quarter horses. He was also surprised given that Larry had been pushing him to finalize a tour of East Coast horse competitions for his prize stallion, Just a Lot of Page. But who the heck could know for sure? Rich people did crazy things all the time. Oh, yeah. And Larry had been acting erratically. Though he always drank, and probably far too much in general, lately it had seemed a lot worse. He was off kilter, muted, and intoxicated almost constantly. While he was usually a meticulously groomed cowboy with pressed jeans and a shining belt buckle, this weekend he had looked rather disheveled. It had been strange. And now this. Elisa continued on, and Greg went about his business. At quarter to 7 a.m., he went to his daughter Debbie's hotel room. She opened the door with eyes the size of saucers. You won't believe what just happened, she said. 
You won't believe what just happened, Greg said. Larry's left. He ran away to join a cult. Debbie opened the door and ushered her father in where he finally saw the television. On the screen was a picture of the World Trade Center in New York City, smoke pouring from a gaping hole in the large building. As they watched with shock, it collapsed. In the aftermath of the most horrific terrorist attack to ever take place on American soil, Larry McNabney having run off hardly seemed consequential. While the country collectively mourned, no one really had time to notice that a grown man with a history of doing a runner, that is what his friends called a drinking binge, was nowhere to be found. But as the days and weeks ticked by, loved ones began to fear that Larry hadn't just taken off on his own volition and that something far more nefarious was at play. This is a twisted tale of long cons, embezzlement, seduction, false identities, horse shows, and a relationship <sighs> so toxic it could rival Amber and Johnny. Wait, I'm dead. You threw in horse shows. Like um, amongst all of the other (laughs) seduction, con, embezzlement, horse shows. So I would like to thank two listeners for recommending this story. Nancy and Sadeep, longtime friends of the podcast. My main sources today are a book as usual and a 2020 episode. The episode is from season 44. It's episode 20, Hell in Heels. And the book is called Cold-Blooded by Carlton Smith. Carlton Smith does an amazing job with this book. And I very seldom choose the same intro that the author does, just to give you guys something different if you're also reading along with me. But his opening was so great set with the backdrop of 9-11 that I used a very similar one. So thank you so much, Mr. Smith, for your great wealth of information and for your unbelievable moment of discovery that I snapped up to use in my own intro. Andy, he also wrote Poisoned Love, which was our main source for the politician Kathy Augustine and her nurse husband, Chaz. How can we forget? I like the way this guy writes. We'll probably be seeing him again. So let's start by talking about our missing Marlboro man of the hour. Lawrence Williams McNabney was born on December 19th, 1948 in Reno, Nevada, the second and last born son of James Mack McNabney and his wife, Marie. Mac was a World War II and Korean War vet who managed the University of Nevada's bookstore after his service and was pretty rough on his boys. He was known as a stern disciplinarian and an alcoholic. So I think that we've probably talked about this in the past, but a predisposition to alcoholism and addiction can be inherited. The American Addiction Center said that genetics only account for about half of a person's overall risk. Usually the other half is some sort of environmental reason. But Larry, unfortunately, would fall under the half that do end up inheriting the affliction. So he would grow up to have massive struggles with substance abuse issues as well. When Larry was a senior in high school, he fell in love with a classmate named Donna Pagini. And despite the objections from both families, they did get married shortly after high school graduation in 1966. Larry went to University of Nevada and Donna gave birth to the couple's only child, a daughter named Kristen, in July of 1968. After attaining his bachelor's degree at U of N, Larry was accepted to law school in Sacramento, California. 
1970. The little family moved there for his studies, but soon after the marriage fell apart. So Donna realized that she had married much too fast and too young. Yep. The same, of course, was true for Larry, but there was an additional conflict, which was that Larry was this amazing, charismatic, fun, very, very smart guy when he wasn't drinking, but when he was and when he drank, like just went over that line of too much, he became aggressive and belligerent. Is this why their families protested the marriage or was it something else? I think that their families just thought they were too young. So that was why. I don't think when he was in high school, the drinking was yet an issue. Got it. You kind of glossed over it, so I wasn't sure. Yeah, I don't think it was an issue in high school. It was just that it kind of portended what was to come. Mm -hmm. It's just an interesting situation because he had a lot of difficulty with his father because of those alcoholism issues. And then he kind of goes on to do the same thing. Although he wasn't as a strict a disciplinarian as his father was for the reason that he did not want to be like him. So yeah, after less than two months in Sacramento, Donna moved back to Reno with Kristen to raise the child with her loving Italian family and filed for divorce. Coincidentally, Larry's mother, Marie, filed for divorce the same year, 1970, citing Max alcoholism as the cause of the end of their 27-year marriage. So this is all happening at the same time. And I have to trigger warn you guys that I'm going to briefly talk about suicide if you want to skip ahead at all or just steal yourself. So Mac was really distraught about the divorce. And as they were getting further along in the divorce proceedings, he shot himself to death. Oh, God. Only three weeks after that, while Marie and Larry were still reeling from the loss, Larry's older brother, Jimmy, died of what was ruled an intentional overdose. So Larry was quadruple whammied. Within a span of only a few months, his wife had divorced him and taken their kid. His parents split up after nearly 30 years together. And then both his father and brother took their own lives in quick succession too much for someone to deal with. That is a breaking point emotionally. And because of this traumatic period in Larry's life, many people believe that this created a fracture inside of him that could never be healed or filled. And that was their reasoning for some of his extremely self-destructive behavior throughout the rest of his life. Despite the fact that he's brilliant and charismatic and he's a good looking guy, you know, like he had everything going for him. But when things like this happen in your life, you know, I know so many amazing, strong people that do manage to pull themselves together and have meaningful lives but they're fighting it too. I mean, when something like this happens, there is something broken inside of you that you have to spend a lot of energy trying to heal. If you're not in a place to do that emotionally, that's when it can be devastating. Yeah. Everyone who loved Larry said that it all came back to this moment. So Larry remarried in 1973 to a single mother named Jody Cotton and went on in 1974 to graduate at the top of his class despite all of the tragedy that he had endured. For the next couple of years, he worked as a public defender at the Washoe County Public Defender's Office. He met another guy who was working as a public defender there named Ron Bath, and the two set out to start their own practice in 1977. 
These guys were total opposites where Larry was flashy, liberal, flamboyant, and spent $2 for everyone he made. Ron was disciplined, conservative, frugal, and very serious. For a good long while, they were actually the perfect complements to each other. Ron said that Larry had one of the most engaging personalities that he had ever encountered. He said, you couldn't be around him and not like him. He did everything with incredible intensity. And in the courtroom, he was as fast on his feet as any lawyer I ever saw. Ron was aware of Larry's drinking problem. And though he claimed that Larry never indulged on trial days, he did say that he would have been better in a courtroom drunk on his worst day than most attorneys would have been sober on their best day. He was that good. Oh, wow. That's, like I think, why he he stayed in the partnership for so long was that even though there was a lot of times where Larry did a runner, usually not during trial, but like when they were getting ready for trial or, you know, he would shirk some duties every once in a while and Ron would cover for him because it was worth it yep. when he was on. Larry also had a head for marketing and adopted a Think Inc. strategy, meaning that being in the newspapers as much as possible was a good thing. He was like the original, like, no PR is bad PR. This was in part due to apparently at the time in Nevada, it was illegal for legal services to advertise, to pay for advertising. Whoa. This is a while ago. So he had to figure out a workaround for that. And he would just get himself in the papers as much as possible because it was free advertising. By 1979, the practice was thriving, and Larry had welcomed two more children with second wife, Jody, daughter Tavia, and son, Joey. It seemed like Jody and Ron were a good team at keeping Larry in line. And when he was teetering too close to the edge, they actually convinced him to seek treatment for his substance abuse issues, and he did. And this was a good period in Larry's life. He got really, really into running. And in typical Larry fashion, it sounded like he couldn't just, you know, go for a casual jog. He had to get into competitive marathon running and actually qualified and did very well in the Boston Marathon. Oh, like someone else I know. I don't know how well I did at the Boston Marathon, but yes, I can't just go for a jog. I have to all of a sudden start running ultra marathons. The practice at this point was chugging along. They had some high-profile criminal cases, but Larry's home life was starting to falter. He ended up divorcing wife number two in late 1982 and married wife number three, Gail Fredericks, in March of the following year. At the same time, Larry got the case of a lifetime that would line his pockets for years to come. Trigger warning. I'm going to talk about what this case is. And there is the mention of child sex abuse. So just fast forward a minute. So this case was against a nursery school. Oh, God. But you're like, whoa, a lawsuit against a nursery school. Turns out that the nursery school's owner's son had molested up to 50 small children over the years. Holy shit. So Larry agreed to represent the families of the children in lawsuits against the school and more importantly, against the school's insurance carrier, because obviously a nursery school isn't going to have a big payout. It turns out that the school had written an unlimited liability policy. So they were able to go after the insurance carrier for shit tons of money. Whoa. Yeah. Unlimited liability. And you also know going into this that you have 
any jury on your side when you're talking about three and four year old, maybe younger kids being molested. At this point, the professional relationship between Larry and partner Ron was breaking up. And this seemed to be like a long time coming just because they had such different values and they were such different people, but probably mostly because Ron and his wife had been really good friends with Joe D, the second wife. And so when he kicked her to the curb and very quickly remarried, I think that Ron and his wife were like, you know what? We don't want to be in business with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. This, this is one, one step too many. Exactly. Ron ended up terminating the partnership and letting Larry take this nursery school case all by himself, oh, which wow. was great for Larry because it brought him lots and lots and lots of money. But as they say, money can't buy happiness. And Larry was back in the bottle. And worse, he was now hooked on drugs as well. Some of his friends believe that he dabbled in a bit of everything, including possibly heroin. Ooh. Yeah, not good. Unsurprisingly, his third marriage broke up in early 1986, falling just shy of the three-year mark. Impulsive rebounding and what seems like a very psychological, like, need for companionship drove Larry to marry for the fourth time yep. only months later in November of 1986. Sounds right. Divorced, married, same year. It's a really interesting personality type that we see often on the show, which is so crazy to me. I feel like, man, if I can't make three times work, I'm just going to throw in the towel. I don't even think it's like about the marriage at that point. Yeah. And he's losing so much money every time he gets divorced. Know, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> It's crazy. So yeah, this time he got married to another Reno-based lawyer. Her name was Linda Gardner. Speaking of money, he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and I guess hours and hours remodeling and building this custom cabin, rustic cabin for Linda. And that's where they actually got married. But he had to sell it for a loss when they divorced after only a year or so of marriage. Whew, it's getting shorter and shorter, huh? Every time. In early 1988, Larry was burnt out and he was lower than he had been since his father and brother's death. So he ended up having a full on meltdown while he was at trial. So it wasn't actually in the courtroom, but he basically asked for a recess. And when they were supposed to come back to trial, he was nowhere to be found. And they finally tracked him down. And he was like completely wasted. And he's like, I'm not going back. I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I'm not doing this. And they ended up giving him a week off so that he could go into a treatment program and then come back and finish the case, which he did. And he was able to do. But after that, he realized and his loved ones around him realized that he really did need a significant break from practicing law at this point. Yeah. And some sort of life pivot, it seems like. <laughs> yep. And so I think he went back into another rehab program while he started to try to figure out what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. And coming out of that, he actually met a woman that I think his friends set him up with. She was a beautiful, blonde, kind of free-spirited woman named Cheryl Targan, who is actually on the 2020 episode that I watched. And the two of them decided to move to Washington State for a change of pace. Okay. 
Yeah, so this was actually very healthy. Cheryl said that when she met Larry, he was just out of rehab and he was totally sober. She said that she fell in love with him in less than two weeks. Like it was instantaneous. He was just amazing and blew her away. Larry's kids also said that he was at his happiest and absolute healthiest when he was with Cheryl. And this was something that he reiterated later in life when things got bad again, that he probably should have stayed with Cheryl because she never forced him to do anything, but she somehow inspired him to want to stay healthy. Yep. And we need those people in our lives if we are at all prone to excess or addiction issues. It's very important. In Yelm, Washington, Larry began woodworking and doing carpentry. The couple would meditate every morning when they woke up. Cute. I know. It sounds actually really nice. He was entirely sober and they were also interested in spirituality. So where they lived, I guess there was, I don't know if it's like a commune because I don't know if people were living there, but there was a school that was called the Ramtha School of Enlightenment. And it was run by a husband and wife team who believed that humans are divine. They just don't usually know it. They believed that breathing exercises, visualizations, and meditations should be practiced to connect with the aspiring God that lives within us all. So that all sounds very positive. This is very likely the cult that Elisa was talking about at the beginning. And for the most part, from what I read, it could not be classified really as a cult. They just had some interesting practices, including that the wife believed that a 35,000-year-old warrior was communing and speaking through her. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Just that. Just that little detail, that little detail that all of these beautiful practices of nurturing the deity within us came from a 35,000-year-old warrior. Okay. Besides that, the practitioners denied that it was a cult when this case blew up in the media. So Larry was really healthy and happy at this time. He actually really liked the challenge of working with his hands, the satisfaction of creating something. But people said that while he stayed off the sauce for a little bit, eventually he started dabbling with cocaine. And then when his mother, Marie, died in 1991, he pretty much fell off the wagon. At that time, he got involved in a legal battle with Marie's second husband about her estate. And he decided to move back to Reno and begin practicing law again, this time in personal injury, because he thought that's where he could make the big bucks. So now that advertising was allowed, this is the early 90s, he would spend upwards of $500 to $100,000 or something a month on TV spots. Whoa. Yeah. So he was the guy you would see on television asking if you had been injured at work or in an accident, uh, you know, and call him. That was Larry. In all of his very well done spots, he looks like a cowboy. They have him riding a horse. He's got the big old hat on and he's like, if you've been wronged in some way, you call Larry McNabney and we'll take care of you. I was going to say, what's his catchphrase? I don't think he really like had one. I saw it on the 2020. They do a clip of it. There wasn't anything that was so remarkable that it stuck out in my mind. But his images, like you'd be like, oh, shit, I got to call that cowboy guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who's the cowboy guy? I got to call him. Yeah. And these were actually very, very popular. He ended up doing insane amount of business and he was smart. 
his office would say there's more work than we can handle. And he's like, great, let's farm it out to other attorneys and they have to pay me a percentage for sending it to them. So he was like mass producing these personal injury lawsuits and raking it in. So he is right back in it now. He wants to win. He wants to go big. And he opened up another office in Elko. And then he really wanted to go for the big time in Nevada, which is Las Vegas. So he was ready to go. Now, at this point, Cheryl and her two daughters from a previous relationship had moved into a house that he bought for them in Reno. But now that he's setting up the Las Vegas office, he needed to get himself an apartment. So it was kind of like a bachelor pad. It was just like a crash pad where he could live while he was getting the Vegas office up and running. But Cheryl also knew this. And I think some of his friends did that Larry running around Vegas by himself probably wasn't the greatest idea. Yeah, no, definitely not. Yeah. And so he opened the office and he was interviewing new staff. He ended up hiring a 29-year-old single mother named Elizabeth Radelsberger as a secretary. And Elizabeth went by her nickname, Elisa. Figured. (laughs) Despite the 18-year age gap, the two immediately hit it off. There were instant sparks. Elisa was smart, feisty, charismatic, and willing to go for the jugular and legal cases. She understood everything about his business. She understood the law, even though she didn't have a law degree. They were kind of like two peas in a pot. And he had had to kind of temper his more compulsive and risk-taking sides in previous relationships to stay healthy and level. But Elisa was very much a risk taker. And she very much was like, let's walk on the wild side. Let's push the envelope. Let's do it together. And he was into it. It probably did not hurt that she was fairly easy on the eyes. She was a slim 5'9". They said she was like 5'9", 130 pounds, dark hair. And she had a really engaging, easy way about her, a big, warm smile. Cheryl said on the 2020 episode that after only two months of knowing Elisa, Larry walked out on their seven-year relationship. Wow. He just like fell head over heels onto the next and did not look back. So Lisa was also getting out of a marriage to a Las Vegas businessman named Kenneth Rettelsberger. So it's kind of, the book made it sound like they were already divorced when she got the job and that was already in the rear view. But on the 2020, it kind of seemed like maybe they were in a place where they could still reconcile. They were still living together. But then when she met her new boss, it was game over. So I'm sure it's somewhere between. In any case, both Elisa and Larry moved on from their partners who were loyal, supportive, and inspired them to be the healthiest possible versions of themselves. Two partners that indulged the very worst of their mutual vices and would prove to be incredibly toxic. Elisa had a nine or 10 year old daughter at the time. Her name was Haley, and she was not Kenneth's biological daughter, but he definitely treated her as though she were. Haley is the focal point of the 2020 episode, and she said that she adored Ken. He was incredible to her. He was very kind and giving and loving to her mother as well. And even after Elisa left, 
and began a relationship with her boss, Haley stayed with Ken for, I think, a few months. So Haley loved Ken just about as much as she immediately hated Larry. At their first meeting, she said that Larry reeked of alcohol, which sounds right. It's not, <laughs> yeah, not a good look when you're meeting your new girlfriend's child. No. But he can't help it, you know? I guess so. I just like, I'm like, you, you at least get a breath mint going or something. So I don't know about that. But it was also abundantly clear to Haley that he had no interest in being any sort of father figure to her like Kenneth had. Yeah. He, in fact, she felt like he willingly wanted to separate her from her mother, that he wanted all of Elisa's attention. He was like obsessed with her and he wanted to take her on vacations and he wanted the two of them to be going off and doing fun things and going on romantic trips and stuff. And he didn't want her kid hanging around, which is a terrible feeling when you're a child and you only have your mom and this new guy is coming in and like trying to cut you out. Yeah. You're a child. Yeah. It's not a good look. I mean, Larry's family has a different perspective on it, but I definitely think that what Haley was going through was very real and it was very painful. Like maybe Larry didn't willingly do it. Maybe he didn't understand what he was doing on purpose. But regardless, the the effect was devastating to Haley. Pretty soon after this gruesome twosome got together, Larry effectively handed the management of all three of his law offices over to Elisa. She was given the title of Chief Operating Officer of Larry McNabney and Associates and had complete authority over Larry's office account, his client trust account, and even his personal accounts. Larry was also lavishing Elisa with anything she wanted, fancy vacations, designer clothes, shoes, and handbags for coats. He even leased a private Learjet to shuttle them between the Reno and Vegas offices in style. On the business side, he was way overspending. Like I said, he was spending millions on TV advertising, and he would also do things like take his entire staff of three legal offices to Acapulco for an all-expenses-paid trip as a thank you. That's really sweet, though. That's a really nice Christmas bonus right yep. there. Unsurprisingly, the cash dried up, and Larry and Elisa were forced to close the most costly one, which was, of course, the Vegas office. They closed that, and they decided to focus on Reno and Elko. And Reno was the most important to Larry because that's his hometown, so it, he's a hometown boy there. Larry booted a heartbroken Cheryl out of their Reno home and moved Elisa and Haley in. And Haley was having a bad time now, too, because she said she was told by Ken that she was going to visit her mother in Reno and then she'd come back to Vegas. And instead, she stayed and she was never allowed to go to home where she thought of home with Ken ever again. Yeah. So, yeah, now they're being the king and queen of Reno over here. I guess Larry bought them two matching black and white Jaguars and they would tool around town in them. In late 1995, the firm came under investigation by the Nevada State Bar and they soon determined that Elisa had embezzled over $140,000 from the firm's clients. Oh, no. How? When you win a settlement, the money actually goes to the attorney and it goes into a client trust account. When they get those checks, obviously they take their portion of it, their pay, 
And then they are legally obligated to pass on the settlement money to their clients. Now, Elisa was just taking the money for herself. That's insane. And essentially robbing the clients. Yeah. Like, you don't think they're going to find out? So that's what she was doing. And when Larry got the heads up that this investigation was happening, he tried to cover their ass collectively by borrowing money from wealthy friends, by using his own cash to put back into the client services accounts trust. But it was too late. By that point, they told him that there was going to be repercussions for what occurred. So in the midst of this investigation in early 1996, instead of kicking Elisa to the curb and to everyone's collective shock, he instead married her on January 6th, making Elisa the fifth and final Mrs. Lawrence McNabney. Is it so he doesn't have to testify against her? That is potentially okay. one of the reasons. So Larry's family and friends, of course, were dying to know why he felt like that was an appropriate time to get married to the woman who had just embezzled from him and his clients. And he said that he just loved her. He was like, I just love her. I want to protect her. I want to be with her. We're going to be together for the rest of our lives. So this is what I wanted to do. There was also rumors at that point that she had also ran a similar scam on her ex-husband, Kenneth. And that was actually what had led to the downfall of their marriage, that she had maybe taken out some credit card in his name and ran up a total and left him with the debt. So everyone's kind of like, I don't think this was a good idea, but it was already done. Author Carlton Smith contended that perhaps Larry actually knew about Elisa's embezzlement and maybe he was even a part of it. And maybe knowing that Larry would be disbarred and there would be criminal proceedings against him if his involvement as an attorney was discovered, Carlton Smith said maybe she leveraged that information to say, look, they're investigating me and I'll take the fall. But if I do that, you got to put a ring on my finger. So that is one theory that also goes hand in hand with the spousal privilege, because now if he's involved, she can't testify against him. So it behooved him to get married to her as well. In any case, I think that the only flag brighter red than an ultimatum proposal is a blackmail proposal. Yes. <laughs> so according to Cold-Blooded, there's also the story that Larry himself told his son, Joe, sometime during the summer of 1998, which at that point they had been married for a couple of years. When Joe observed that Larry did not seem to be happy with Elisa, Larry, who was a bit drunk, according to Joe, told his son that he couldn't afford to leave Elisa, that she could ruin him. So Joe really did think that there was some sort of blackmailing situation Yeah, there. it sounds like it. Many people also believed that Elisa was enabling Larry's drinking and drug use to further control him and take over his finances. That's sad. Yeah. Elisa's daughter Haley denied this, saying that the only person who could make Larry drink was Larry. Like, he didn't need any help or enabling. And I agree that there's a certain level of personal responsibility we all must have over our own lives and control of our own, you know, substance intake. However, when you're dealing with somebody who's been in and out of rehab and has a known substance abuse problem, as a partner to that person, 
you have to kind of tweak your own life to support them and to try to encourage them, even though at the end of the day, it's his responsibility. I think that if she cared about his well-being, she probably would have tried to help a little bit more. In March of 1997, the bar found Larry guilty of two counts of unprofessional conduct, including failing to properly supervise the employees in his law firm and improperly permitting his client account to be misused. Larry was given a public reprimand and two private reprimands. Elisa was banned from ever working at any of Larry's Reno law offices. Throughout 1997, the couple had a really hard time. They had to downgrade from a really nice big house to an apartment. They had lost a ton of business due to the public reprimand. And Larry was becoming increasingly isolated from lifelong friends who suspected that Elisa was purposely alienating him from his loved ones. Oh, it's not a good sign. No. She even mounted a campaign against Larry's daughter, Tavia, who hadn't approved of the marriage and was not technically his biological daughter because she was adopted. According to author Carlton Smith, she didn't like me, Tavia said later, referring to Elisa. It was also clear that Tavia didn't think much of Elisa either. Tavia later decided that Elisa had kept her away from Larry because she was afraid that Tavia would unmask Elisa as a gold digger. Eventually, Elisa did convince Larry to write a new will, one that shared all of Larry's assets between herself, Haley, Joe, and Kristen, but cut Tavia out completely. Then Elisa joyfully told Joe and Kristen the news that Tavia had been cut out. Yeah, I mean, all these people just seem like kind of nasty. Yeah. It's like, why would you be happy about him cutting his daughter out of a will? That's like not. Yeah, well, she was happy about it. Tavia's siblings weren't. Of course. They were like, thanks. Because she was like trying to tell it to them like, you get a bigger piece of the pie now, so you should be happy. And they're like, you cut our sister out because she's not biologically related to our father. Guess what? Neither is Haley. It's altogether not a great situation. Joe was the only child of Larry's that even had a passable relationship with Elisa. The two daughters did not. And Haley really didn't like Larry either. So this is a very unhappy Brady Bunch. So Larry and Elisa decided to close down the Reno office in 1998 and move to Sacramento to open a new one. And this was so that Elisa could once again run the office legally. Slash embezzle money. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Larry must have known something was going on because how do you go from that situation to let's move so you can do the same thing somewhere else? Yeah, they set up shop in Sacramento, but it was clear that Larry's heart was not in the law anymore. He divided his time mostly between drinking binges and golf, and he rarely came into the office. They did hire other attorneys, and they also outsourced cases. So he didn't have to all the time be in the office. Haley reported that Larry's drinking had grown out of control and that he had become very abusive when he was wasted. She said on the 2020 that he had grabbed her by the throat at least once, and she had not known even what to do. She just totally froze because no one had ever physically assaulted her that way before. So they ended up in Sacramento. She would bounce around and live with friends until Elisa was able to get her her own apartment when she turned 16. 
Meanwhile, Joe also occasionally lived with a couple. Apparently, he spent some time with them in Reno and in Sacramento. And he said he did not witness any abuse, but he did say that his father seemed scared of Elisa. Hmm. Larry told Joe that Elisa was a compulsive liar who took medication for that condition and that he was doomed to be married to her forever, which went hand in hand with insinuating that the marriage was based on blackmail. So suffice to say, this is not a happy marriage by any stretch of the imagination. You don't say. But... Yeah, the relationship did get a new lease on life when the couple got into the horse show business. Elisa had grown up around horses. She was obsessed with them. And Larry, I mean, just look at his ads. He had kind of always fancied himself a horseman. And they got into champion quarter horse shows. And Debbie, who is the horse trainer's daughter who also worked with horses, described this type of horse show as like a really big dog show. It's the same type of thing that there's like one presenter, like owner who shows the horse and they like walk them around the circle and make them like trot and stuff like that. Just like in like best of show or like that amazing dog show that's always on on Thanksgiving. That's super fun. (laughs) I love a dog show. I really do. They got into that and Larry really, really, really loved him. Larry was the showman and he absolutely loved it. It's kind of like being in the courtroom without any of the pressure or stress. He just gets to show up and like be on and do his thing. So yeah, he adored it. And there was also money to be won at competitions. And you could, of course, sell the champion horses to stud or broodmare. So there was ways to make money on this venture Eventually, but obviously horses are expensive. Horse care is expensive. They needed to get a special horse trailer for shows, a special truck that went like with this horse trailer. It's a whole thing. So this was a not cheap endeavor. His new passion, however, did not keep him off the sauce, unfortunately. And on December 5th, 2000, Larry was arrested for a DUI after drinking all day on the golf course. When he was processed at the sheriff's station, his blood alcohol content was 0.28. What's the legal? 0.08. Oh my goodness. Are you serious? How is he golfing? People are known to die at 0.34. So he wasn't that far off. Debbie's husband went golfing with him at one point and said that he, during their, you know, how many ever rounds it is, obviously I don't golf, but during their full day of golfing, he drank an entire bottle of vodka. Like a handle? Don't know if it was a handle. I envisioned it as just like a normal, like absolute bottle. Got it, got it. Yep. Yeah, like a normal, yeah, like I guess wine bottle sized or something or maybe a little more. That doesn't seem like the daytime drink of choice while golfing. No, I, and I don't know if he was drinking it straight. He could have been like, you know, pouring it in an Arnold Palmer or something. Like, I don't know if he was drinking it straight. But anyway, Debbie's husband said, in any case, he emptied an entire bottle while playing golf. Now, this wasn't that at that time. So maybe he did that. And then he went to the country club bar after and had a couple drinks and then went home. He apparently even made it home. It just sounded like he ended up cutting off a driver and the driver was forced to hit the guardrail because of how he had gotten over and switched lanes. And he was pissed. So the guy was trying to get his attention because he had damaged the car. 
and Larry was drunk and out of it. And he drove all the way home and the angry driver called the police and followed him home. And that's how he ended up getting the crazy. Yeah. So this was very depressing for Larry. He had spent a significant amount of time being like, I'm an attorney. I can't get a DUI. And so when he was drinking out, he would pay somebody to drive him home. He'd be like, I'll pay you to get a taxi at my house, but you have to drive me home. So he had been mostly careful for a lifelong alcoholic. And he was bummed out that this happened. In January of 2001, to cheer himself up, Larry purchased an eight-month-old colt called Just a Lot of Page, which would turn out to be his champion horse. When Just a Lot of Page was 10 months old, they started showing him all over the West Coast. So by the time he was one, they had gone to Scottsdale, Arizona, Las Vegas, places in Oregon, Rancho Murrieta, Santa Rosa, Santa Barbara, Bakersfield, and Elk Grove, California. Well, he was away participating in these shows, a lot of times Elisa would go with him, but sometimes she would hold back. And he also, even when he was home, wasn't going into the office that much. So while the cat was away, the mouse was playing and Elisa was back up to her dirty old tricks. Now, she can't exactly be draining the client trust the same way and get caught the same way. So she would do a thing where basically in any checkbook, even like consumer checkbooks, there's that carbon paper so you can see what you wrote the check for. And when you run a business like that, there's like a big portfolio. I know when I worked in my dad's office that I had to account for every check that was written. And she would do that. But what she would do was slide a piece of cardboard between the paper check and the carbon copy. And she would write it for whatever she wanted. So she'd write like a $5,000 check to cash for herself. And then she would go and she'd get another piece of paper and put it over the carbon and she would write $400 for auto insurance. So when he went, he came in and checked and looked at the checks and the carbon, it would seemingly seem like she was just paying for the necessities. And so that was her new grift. The police would later believe that in order to prevent Larry from realizing that she was cooking the books, Elisa began drugging Larry with ketamine, a.k.a. Special K, which is a horse tranquilizer. But given that Larry had always enjoyed drug use and people obviously do use ketamine recreationally. And medicinally. It's possible. Oh, is it medicinal? For depression. Oh, for mental yeah, I guess that's a very different dosage. Yes, though. yes but it's cool that it's <laughs> you're not. Gonna, yeah, it is very cool. I, I, I'm definitely down for alternative forms of like mental health medication, but I don't think uh, going down a K hole is going to help your mental health on the regs. <laughs> so it's it's possible that he was taking special K by himself. It's also possible that Elisa was drugging him with it to keep him off kilter. Somebody who drinks excessively and uses other drugs the way Larry did would probably not realize he got drugged. He'd wake up the next day and go, wow, I don't know. I guess I must have drank more than I thought. It's all a drop in the bucket at that point. So that's a theory about how he had no idea what was going on with his law practice or personal finances. 
And Elisa was bleeding him dry while he was in a drug or alcohol-induced stupor. So the plot thickens now. We have a third player come into this drama, a 21-year-old blonde art student with good looks and a taste for the finer things in life. Elisa met Sarah Dutra when she interviewed for a part-time receptionist position, and the two women totally hit it off. Sarah Dutra was born on August 14th, 1980. She was one of three children, two parents, Mark and Karen, in Vacaville, California. By all accounts, Sarah was one of the brightest and most popular students at her high school. She even served as her senior class president. She was an art student at Sacramento State when she applied for this job, and Author Carlton Smith said that they shared like a brilliance and intensity, even though there was a big age gap. They were both considered good looking women. They had a kind of vivaciousness that was shared between the two of them. And they also had somewhat of a contempt for men. Now, Elisa, by this time, was very contemptuous of Larry. She would definitely explain to other people that he was like a disgusting alcoholic, that he was rude, that he was a creep, that he was boorish. She like talked shit on him any chance she could get, including to Sarah, who was technically Larry's employee. And Sarah had gone through her own situation with her father in her teens. I'm not sure quite if her father was a minister or if he was just a higher up in this church. But he ended up embezzling $140,000 from the Valley of Evangelical Free Church where he worked and he was caught. Yikes. So that was quite the scandal. And Sarah definitely held some animosity for making that such a big deal with her when she was a teenager. And that was mortifying. And also, obviously, he lost his job. So they also have this shared contempt. Pretty soon, Elisa was taking Sarah out to long, lavish lunches and dropping a thousand bucks a pop on a shopping trip. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say at lunch. <laughs> well, like they'd go out to lunch and then they'd spend a thousand dollars shopping. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I thought you were going to say a thousand dollars on lunch. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. And soon Elisa was giving her raises. She bumped her salary up to three grand a month, which... Is insane for a early 2000s, 21-year-old still in college without any sort of degree relating to the law. Because Larry almost never came into the office, Sarah only had Elisa's word about what kind of man he was, a disgusting, abusive old drunk who benefited from his wife having to shoulder the entire law practice by herself. So she very much was under the same impression as Elisa. She was Elisa's go-to girl. Elisa's the hard worker. Larry's a loser scumbag. That was 100% Sarah's opinion. And then Sarah started joining the grift herself. Eventually, evidence would show that she, like Elisa, would forge Larry's signature on checks for her own personal gain. Haley hated this new relationship, even though Sarah did let her use her name and ID to get an apartment when she was 16. So that was helpful. But she just did not understand why her mother needed to be hanging around with a new 21-year-old best friend when Haley was 16. She's only five years younger, and she could be taking Haley out to these lunches and expensive shopping trips. Why wasn't she spending time with her daughter? 
So Haley thought that Sarah was a bad news for her mother, and Sarah's parents thought the same thing. They were equally alarmed. They were very concerned that Elisa, who was technically Sarah's boss, was dropping all of these expensive presents on her and even leased her a BMW at one point. Hmm. Yeah, so Sarah's boyfriend at the time said that Elisa was a horrible influence on Sarah who began to treat her parents like dirt because they didn't have as much money and weren't as cool as Elisa. There was some speculation that this relationship was more than platonic, especially, I guess, Larry grumbled about it. He wanted Sarah fired. He hated Sarah. They started palling around together all the time. And he made some comments about them having some sort of lesbian relationship, but there is no evidence that they did. Both women denied it, and people who knew them said that it did not seem like that was the tone of their relationship. They were just very, very close besties. It sounds like the tone. <laughs> I knew. I saw your little face. I knew where you were going with that. You're like, mm-hmm. Least BMW. I know. I love you, Andy, but I'm never getting you a BMW. Hey. So this went on for a long time. And by September 10th, 2001, the day before Larry McNabney went missing, bank records would show that the law office client account was down to $1,645, while Larry's personal account balance was down to only $141. Ooh. Yeah. So by the time Larry went missing, checks were bouncing all over the place. And later people would wonder how... A smart guy like Larry had not noticed that he had zero money. So in cold-blooded, Carlton Smith said that it seemed incredible that Elisa, with Sarah's help, could have spent so much money without Larry knowing. But to understand what happened, two things need to be recalled. First, that Elisa had devised a scheme to misinform Larry as the amount of cash he had on hand with the fake check registers. And more importantly, that during the period most of this was going on, say from April to September, Larry was heavily drinking and apparently using drugs, probably Special K, which does have an amnesia-like side effect. It may well have been that Larry had no capacity to recall what checks he'd actually signed or for how much. Still, it may be that at the end of the summer, Larry was beginning to suspect that something was out of whack. Some of Larry's Reno friends later speculated that by the weekend he disappeared, Larry had tumbled onto Elisa's creative accounting and confronted her over it, threatening to send her to jail which then precipitated Elisa's next decision. But given some of Larry's other remarks around the same time, that could have only taken place in the hours immediately before his disappearance. Up until that point, he did seem rather oblivious to his true financial condition because he was talking about going on these East Coast shows, which he wouldn't have done if he had known how little money he had going on. What was clear to everyone, though, by the time that they showed up on September 5th in the City of Industry for this long horse show, everybody said that they were at each other's throats. They were just sniping at each other. They were miserable by then. So the weekend just went from bad to worse. Larry was wasted most of the time, even, like I said in the intro, appearing uncharacteristically disheveled. No matter how much he drank, he was always well put together, especially like kind of like when he had to go do a trial. The same was said when he was showing a horse. He always looked immaculate. 
And this time there was like dirt on his jeans. He wasn't put together. He just looked weird. On Sunday night, the whole group ended up going to an Olive Garden for dinner. Mm. I love an Olive Garden. Unlimited breadsticks. And that dressing is so good. I know. I would (laughs) face some Olive Garden right now. So they're at Olive Garden. And a fight broke out. So Larry was really bad. He was completely out of it. He was being like really rude. He was drunk. He was belligerent. And at one point he said something to Sarah and the two famously did not get along. And Sarah said, well, fuck you, Larry, and gave him the finger, which she's his 21-year-old employee. He's the, you know, the 50-something boss. So everyone's kind of like, whoa, this has taken a turn. And Elisa was obviously on Sarah's side, not her husband's. So Gary, who is their horse trainer, and his daughter, Debbie, are like, holy shit, this is getting out of hand. And when Debbie tried to intervene, Larry turned to her and he's like, I don't know why you're being such a bitch and like kind of went after her. So Debbie's like, okay, this is just Larry. Larry's being a dick. So this whole dinner was terrible. And Elisa said, I'm just going to go and I'm going to take Larry home and I'm going to put him in bed because this is ridiculous. And... At that point, Sarah said that she was leaving to go back to Sacramento for school. Another time, though, at this horse show, Debbie had overheard Sarah and Elisa talking to somebody else, another woman that they wanted to get drinks with later, and saying, Larry might be lame if we want to go out, so we'll just get him really wasted so he passes out and we can all go out. So... Debbie thought Larry was being inappropriate, but she also had a sneaking suspicion that Elisa acted like she was really upset when he was so drunk. But maybe when she overheard that comment, she was like, maybe this is all part of her plan. It's a very twisted relationship. Sarah allegedly went back to Sacramento at that point. The next day was Monday, September 10th, which was an off day for the horse show. That morning, Elisa peppered Debbie with questions about a horse tranquilizer called Ace and how much of it it would take to kill a person. What? Meanwhile, Larry was mapping out those East Coast shows that he wanted to go to and trying to plan what they were going to do with Just a Lot of Page next. Everyone retired to their own rooms for most of the afternoon. But later, Greg called Larry in his room because they had been having dinner around 6 p.m. And I guess that the special was this soup. And Greg thought the soup was delicious. So he called Larry and he's like, hey, Larry, you need to eat something. This soup is great. Why don't I bring some up to your room? And Larry sounded really bad. He said he sounded like slurring, like he didn't know where he was. It sounded bad. And so Elise came over and he's like, wow, you know, Larry declined the offer for soup, but you should bring him something because he sounded out of it. And Elisa reportedly sat down, had a drink with them and then brought a glass of Chardonnay and some soup up to Larry. And then we're back to the morning of September 11th. So that was what Greg last heard of Larry and he was never seen again after that. Oh no. Yeah. So Debbie and Greg were surprised to see Sarah walk up with Elisa mid-morning while they were all still reeling from the two shocking pieces of information One, obviously, 9-11, and then secondarily, the fact that Larry, who is the boss and pays for all of this stuff and it's his horse, had decided to just leave and go join a cult, apparently. Okay. So they didn't know why Sarah was there, too, because she was supposed to be in Sacramento. So it was pretty weird. Debbie was at her own truck, and she saw 
Sarah and Elisa pulling away in Larry's truck. And she's like, okay, this doesn't make any sense because they say Larry left in the early morning hours, like sometime at like four in the morning or something. And how would he have left if they have his truck and they have by now grounded every flight because of 9-11? So how the hell was he supposed to get back to this mysterious cult that he supposedly was going back to? So she stopped them. She was like, hey, hey, where are you guys going? Like, so Larry left his truck. What's going on here? And Alisa was like, yep. And then she goes, he must have taken a flight, like a taxi and a flight. I guess that's what happened. And she goes, oh, okay. well, where are you guys going? And Alisa said, we're going to the bank to make sure that Larry hasn't cleaned out all of the accounts. Uh, As they're driving away, Debbie notices some very odd things in the back of the truck, a wheelchair and two shiny new shovels. What? It's so random. A little odd. (laughs) Yep. So later, the police would discover that Elisa and Sarah had rented the wheelchair at a medical supply company that day. They had gone and sat in the parking lot at 8.30 in the morning until they opened at 9 a.m. and were the first customers. She said, Elisa said that her older husband, who was disabled, needed a wheelchair for a wedding that they were going to. Yeah, it's I mean, it's a little sus when you're waiting in the parking lot at the medical supply store. Yeah. And it's even more sus because the person who checked them out said that they both reeked of marijuana. (laughs) Debbie and Greg did not see either woman until the afternoon of Wednesday, the 12th, when Elisa showed back up and she at that point gave Larry's golf clubs to Greg, telling him that Larry had not only quit the law, and the horse show business, but also golf, which other than drinking were all of Larry's interests. So Greg's like, well, that's a little strange. Debbie and Greg were confused, but they didn't know what else to do other than go with it because Elisa said she was going to keep paying the bills anyway. So they went to do a couple more horse shows with just Elisa and Sarah. And then eventually Elisa sold the horse trailer and the special truck that Larry had bought specifically for the horse shows. So she was liquidating now. The two women returned to Sacramento and back to running the office where they told people different stories about Larry's disappearance. Sometimes it was the cult line. Sometimes they said that he had joined a year-long rehab program. And at least once they said that he had pissed off a drug dealer and he was in hiding. Elisa also leased a brand new bright red Jaguar convertible in Sarah's name at this point and told people that it was a divorce settlement from Larry. Oh my gosh, ruthless. Yeah, and it's getting dire at the law firm at this point. Clients were not getting their settlement money. And there was one client that was specifically supposed to receive a hundred grand and she could prove that the settlement had been paid to the law firm. And so she kept calling Elisa and being like, well, where's my money? I know you have it. And Elisa kept putting her off and blaming Larry for things. Now there was another secretary, a young woman named Ginger Miller, who is on the 2020 as well, who had been pretty friendly with both Elisa and Sarah. I guess Elisa liked that they're both like really young, good looking blondes that were employed there. But Ginger started noticing things. She started noticing that Larry was never around. And then when they came back from that one horse show, he was 
very inconspicuously not around. Like it was obvious that he didn't exist anymore, basically. So that was already unsettling. She saw them forging signatures and doing a bunch of sketchy shit. And now clients were calling her and saying, Ginger, where's my money? And she did not know. She had nothing to do with the finances. So she's like, this is getting really, really sketchy. And she said to Elisa, look, like, I think you're running some sort of scam here and hungry mouths talk. So you don't pay these clients, they're going to start reporting you. And then it was her hungry mouth that was talking because her paycheck started bouncing and she ended up walking her ass right over to the Sacramento police station and telling them everything. So it was the last day of November 2001, and she said, look, my boss has been missing for a really long time. I'm worried that these two women did something to him because they are doing all sorts of sketchy financial stuff, and they are ripping off clients. You need to look into it. I think something bad happened to my boss. And also by now, Larry's kids were concerned. Yeah. At first, everyone was like... They got into a fight. Larry did a runner. He's just out somewhere on a bender trying to get away from Elisa. It's fine. But now they're coming up on three months since anyone's seen Larry. This is not usual. No. And Joe was the only kid that was still in touch with Elisa. So he's calling her and she keeps saying, oh, no, he's in a rehab program. Oh, nope, he's out of town. You know, he's got something going on. And he's like, I'm going to see him for Christmas, though, right, Elisa? She's like, yes, absolutely. You're invited over for Christmas. We can't wait to see you. But lo and behold, when Christmas rolled around, she called him back and said, nope, you can't come. He's busy. The only other remarkable thing that happened in December was that December 13th, Sarah and Elisa drove the Jaguar to Las Vegas for the National Rodeo Show. So we'll talk a little bit more about that experience later. By now, the cops were starting to nose around and ask some questions about Larry's whereabouts. So Elisa quietly closed the law office on January 1st, 2002, which she was forced to anyway because she hadn't been paying the rent and their landlords were about to evict them. Mm -hmm. She also moved out of the rental home that she had shared with Larry and Haley after Larry's disappearance. Sarah and Haley sold Larry's valuables for cash and dumped everything else he owned in donation collection bins or just dumpsters all over town. On January 8th, Sarah rented a U-Haul and loaded up Elisa's remaining possessions. What they didn't take, they gave to Greg Whalen's ranch hands. So they gave a bunch of furniture to these ranch hands as well as a used refrigerator that had come from the McNabney's garage. Authorities descended upon the home on January 10th, 2002, but it was already too late. Elisa was in the wind. <gasps> She's Gonesville. So five days after that, after they tried to go to search the house on January 10th, on January 15th, Sarah showed up at the Sacramento police station to report that Elisa had disappeared with a Jaguar convertible that was leased in Sarah's name. And when she had tried to get a hold of Elisa, Elisa's cell phone had been disconnected. And now Sarah was worried that she was going to be on the hook for the stolen Jaguar's car payments. They're like, lady, you got bigger problems than your stolen Jaguar. Where the hell is your girlfriend and her husband? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
Yeah. Thanks for coming in, though. You made our job easier. So Sarah maintained that she hadn't seen Larry since September 10th and Elisa since January 8th when she helped her pack her belongings. She claimed that she believed that the unhappy couple were both still alive, but they were divorcing and just going through a rough patch at that point. And she said that she was supposed to meet Elisa in Scottsdale, Arizona. And when she had arrived at the airport where Elisa told her there would be a ticket waiting for her, the ticket wasn't there. There was nothing in her name. And then she tried to call Elisa to figure out what the hell was going on with the ticket and the phone was disconnected. So she said, I'm now alarmed. You know, obviously I'm out of a job and I'm out of a car and I'm concerned about everything and I don't know where they are. So it seems likely to the police later on that this was her trying to get ahead of the situation. She's like, I'll go down and pretend like I don't know what's going on here to look like I'm just another innocent witness in their couple's game. But by now, the authorities had already discovered all of the embezzling schemes and that Sarah took part in the forgeries. They also had Ginger's testimony who told them everything. So they know she's lying. They're like, sure, sure, of course, sweetheart. And they also believe that not only does she know where Elisa is because they were BFFs, and so they feel like Elisa would have cut Sarah into the plan in some fashion. They also believe that it is likely that Larry is not alive anymore and that Sarah knows where he could be found. But there's still not enough evidence to hold her on anything, so they let her go. On February 5th, 2004, farm workers make a grisly discovery in a vineyard about 10 minutes away from Lodi, where Elisa and Larry had been living. It was a human leg bone that had been dug up by a dog that lived on the vineyard. When the forensic anthropologists canvassed the area, they soon discovered the corpse of a middle-aged man wearing a t-shirt and boxer shorts curled in the fetal position in a shallow grave. So at first, actually, the investigators thought that they were dealing with an unidentified victim of a pair of serial killers that had been active in the area. But this was not the case. Obviously, the body was too new. It was not decomposed to the point that it should have been if that was the case, because these men had already been tried and convicted. And then they were like, well, maybe this is the missing Sacramento attorney that we've heard so much about in the news. And it looked just like him. But they also didn't know how it could be Larry because the body seemed as if it had been put in the ground only like a couple weeks earlier. And Larry had gone missing in September. So he should have been much more decomposed had he died when he went missing. The autopsy began on February 7th. And the pathologist was immediately struck by the absence of any obvious fatal injuries to the body. There were no gunshot wounds. There was no stab wounds, no clear evidence of any sort of choking or blunt trauma. The pathologist also noted the same thing the detectives had, that if this was indeed Larry, which he was DNA tested and and it proved to be, it seemed way too recent for him to have died in September. The only overt sign of injury that the pathologist noticed was a surface hemorrhage in the muscles of the upper back area, but that was it. There was no broken bones, no internal injuries at all. 
he was fingerprinted and DNA tested, and it did prove that the dead man was very much Larry. But she doesn't know why he's so well-preserved. There's also telltale marks when your body is frozen and thawed. And it was clear that he hadn't been frozen as well. The pathologist is trying to figure out what happened. Like maybe he was kidnapped and held somewhere, but he doesn't like have any signs that he was either hurt or beat or shackled or starved. So then the pathologist thinks, well, what if the body had been in a fridge and not a freezer? That would have very well preserved the body without doing the damage of fully freezing him. One theory that the pathologist came up with was that Larry had been drugged and then locked in the refrigerator and suffocated. Ooh, that's not a good way to go. And so the pathologist was aware that Larry ran in horse circles, so they tested him for various horse tranquilizers. On February 20th, the toxicology report indicated that Larry had absolutely been dosed with a horse tranquilizer called xylazine. The amount of xylazine that is fatal for a human is 0.3 milligrams, but eight whole milligrams were found in Larry's system. shit. Yeah, that's almost 27 times the lethal dose. But that wasn't even the biggest shocker. 69.2 milligrams were discovered in his liver, 270 times greater than the lethal dose. Oh, my God. At that point, she can completely rule out any sort of Larry ingesting this tranquilizer himself either for suicide or for recreational purposes because there is no way he could have gotten that much into his system continuously to have that sort of buildup. Somebody must have, while he was already passed out, continued to inject or feed it to him somehow. Totally. Going off the pathologist's hunch that Larry had been refrigerated, they searched the home and discovered that a fridge had been taken from the garage. It had ended up in the possession of one of Greg Whelan's ranch workers. It ended up being Larry's wine fridge. That was what this fridge had been previously used for. And when it was forensically searched, they found trace amounts of blood and hair that were DNA tested and found to belong to who else but Lawrence Williams McNabb. How brutal. Brutal. So brutal. And I'm also thinking about this ranch worker who got a free fridge and then found out they had been using a fridge with blood and hair in it. Yeah, that he was gifted a post-murder murder, yeah, device. Storage facility. A casket fridge. So at this point, the police are like, okay, let's get Sarah back in here. And let's also issue an arrest warrant for Elisa McNabney. But when they went to do that, they discovered that no such person existed. What? Elizabeth Rettelsberger McNabney was not her real name. As they would come to find out, Elisa was actually a con woman criminal named Lauren Sims, who had stolen the social security number and identity of a woman she had been in prison with. Oh my God. If you have a pet, they're part of your family. Nothing compares to coming home to a wiggle butt or waking up to soft purrs. It's not all just cuddles, though. Being a pet parent is a huge responsibility. 
Since our pets can't talk, we do our best to understand what's going on. But knowing something's up with them and their health and not understanding why is one of the greatest challenges of pet parenthood. Enter Fuzzy. Fuzzy is a telehealth service for pet parents that offers 24-7 access to personalized pet care from veterinary professionals. Jesse, you know my cat Quincy is the unofficial mascot of the podcast, whether you like it or not. So (laughs) I like it. (laughs) So you know that anytime I think something is wrong with him, I start frantically Googling and call you. It's true. But now from everyday questions to middle of the night emergencies, Fuzzy has the answers that you and other pet parents need. Through live chat and virtual vet consultations available to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Fuzzy can answer your pet questions big and small, urgent and every day. Fuzzy can also recommend the exact right products for your pet, all of which are handpicked by their established team of veterinary professionals and available at discounts exclusive to Fuzzy members. From getting your pet's diet just right to meeting their middle-of-the-night needs to finally figuring out what makes their breath smell that way, nothing is too big or small for a quick Fuzzy call. Right now, Fuzzy is offering our listeners a free seven-day trial membership. Go to yourfuzzy.com slash lovemurder today to sign up. That's a free seven-day trial and access to exclusive member discounts on pet meds, supplements, food, and more at Y-O-U-R-F-U-Z-Z-Y dot com slash lovemurder. Again, yourfuzzy.com slash lovemurder for your free trial of Fuzzy with access to 24-7 personalized pet care and vet recommended products. Jesse, you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Andy, Shopify has to be one of the companies that I know you love most. It is absolutely true. I have spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been such an important part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I've always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest challenges for small business owners and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe the tools they need to succeed. We're actually (laughs) switching our merch store to Shopify right now. I cannot wait to get that up and running. Other favorite things about Shopify include you're able to design your own website from scratch. They allow really reduced shipping rates for UPS so that you can get big company discounts for shipping. They allow you to track inventory. The pictures are great when they are posted online. Everything is awesome. You can use their multiple apps to shop your Instagram. The possibilities with Shopify are absolutely endless. With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. This chick had a rap sheet 113 pages long. Stop it. 
Yep. And they have no idea where she is. So let's rewind and talk about who the heck Laren Sims is. It's like Lauren, but no you. It's like Lauren or like something like that. So sorry, guys, if I'm pronouncing it very weird. So Laren Sims was born in Attleboro, Massachusetts in March of 1966 while her dad was attending MIT. He was obviously one smart cookie, as was Laren. She did inherit that brain. Her IQ was allegedly 145. She was raised in Brooksville, Florida, a quaint town about 45 minutes north of Tampa. And her parents, by all accounts, are kind, decent, upper middle class parents. They raised her and her siblings on a bucolic horse ranch. Lauren herself would later say that there was no great trauma or tragedy in her life. She just wasn't good like her parents. She said, quote, I never fit the mold. The fact that my parents even acknowledge me is amazing. I am not good like they are. I don't have it in me. I don't know why. And I don't know if I ever did. Hmm. Yeah. So it seemed like if she suffered from anything, it was impulsivity and a desire for immediate gratification. She was generally regarded as a bright kid and a good student until her teen years when it seemed like she went completely off the rails. In 1984, she dropped out of high school, just a couple months shy of her graduation, to marry a military man named Virgil Jordan. The wedding seemed kind of maybe of the shotgun variety because daughter Haley was born in January of 1985. By the time Haley was born, the marriage was already over. Lauren began another relationship shortly after and had another child, a baby boy named Cole, with her new boyfriend on March 17th, 1986. Unfortunately, that relationship ended as well, though it seemed at least like Cole's dad was potentially more involved in his life than Haley's father was. And it's important to remember that Elisa slash Lauren was very young at this point. She was barely 19 when she had Haley, and then she had another child the year after. So at this point, she's a single mother of two, and she did manage to get her GED and a couple years of college under her belt so she could achieve her dental assistant certificate and get a job, which is great. Yeah. But unfortunately, Laren figured that she didn't want to buy what she could steal for free. And her trouble officially began in 1988 when she was arrested for stealing blonde hair dye. She did not learn her lesson, however, and she ended up getting arrested again for stealing from a neighbor, fencing stolen property, and then burglarizing the house of a boyfriend's ex-wife. Whoa. Yeah, so that situation, they talk about it briefly on the 2020, but it was one in which she was dating a guy who had kids and she said later that she and the boyfriend had given the kids presents so that they could all go over there and open them together on Christmas. And when the ex-wife didn't want to let them come, she broke into the house to steal the presents back. Oh my God, come on. Yeah, so she agreed to plead guilty to the two burglaries in order to get probation for five years and no jail time, as well as pay restitution of about $1,200 to the victims. But again, she did not learn her lesson. And in a six-week period during May and June of 1987, she wrote 18 bad checks and also stole $1,300 of property from her rented mobile home after her landlord evicted her. 
She was arrested again, but managed to get off with a slap on the wrist. When she violated that parole, they finally threw her in the slammer for three years. However, her sentence was cut short when she agreed to rat out some people in the prison and turn informant. Altogether, she ended up in and out of prison from 1989 to 1993. The last time she violated parole by not staying in touch with her parole officer, her family's attorney was able to keep her out of jail by agreeing that she would wear an ankle monitor and that she was gainfully employed. Well, she was employed for a little while until she stole her boss's credit card and went on an unauthorized shopping spree. Whoa. Yeah. That's why I think that there has to be some sort of compulsive issue here because her parents were well off. There was no need for this. This wasn't because she was starving. This seems like it's also like something she just can't control. And so when she realized that her boss had called the cops on her, she decided to clip the ankle monitor off and make a run for it. She left her son Cole with his father and she asked Haley, who was around eight years old at this time, if Haley wanted to stay with grandpa and grandma or go with her on the road. Now, naturally, this child is eight years old. They don't know what decision they're making. They just want to be with their mother. Yes. Of course. Of course, Haley said, you, mommy, I want to be with you. And as a result, Haley would not see the rest of her family for nearly a decade. And she spent the most formative years of her childhood and teen years scurrying around from place to place as a fugitive with her mother. So Lauren adopted the name Elizabeth Barash from a former cellmate and called herself Elisa from that moment on. Life on the run and with Elisa in general was very traumatic for Haley. She never got to settle in any one place for long. She was never really able to make friends. She didn't have any sort of semblance of a normal life. And Elisa was so dysfunctional that Haley grew up way too fast and was forced into a caretaker role. She said as early as like eight or nine years old, she was the one who was making soup for herself when Elisa wasn't around or making soup for Elisa. She was fully responsible and she felt very much like her mother's protector. You can tell. I mean, you watch the 2020 and she still very much loves her mother. She did not look at this childhood and say, wow, my mom really screwed me up. My mom is a bad person. How dare she do this to me? She has a lot of empathy for her mother and clearly living this way with just the two of them against the world created a bond that I don't think anyone outside of it can really understand. Because no matter what Elisa did, it sounds like to this day, Haley's like, she did it because she was abused. She did it because he backed her into a corner. He's the bad guy. She's not the bad person. And she still very much fiercely, fiercely loves her mother. So for whatever reason, good or bad, even though this was such a traumatic way to grow up, Haley came out of it only loving and wanting to protect her mother more, it seemed like. She was really relieved by the time they got to Vegas and Elisa met Kenneth because he was like a dream dad to Haley. And she finally had a real home life. She finally had a father figure for the first time in basically her entire life. And everything was going really well. I mean, I think that Haley would have genuinely been happy had Elisa stayed with this very solid, kind man. 
but she just could not help herself. And she took out credit cards in his name and ran up. I, I read differing accounts, but somewhere between thirty dollars and $50,000 in credit card debt in his name. Whoa. Yeah. So at that point, and, and why maybe there was still some confusion about whether they were together or not, I think that he had to get divorced to prove that he had not authorized those purchases and try to get himself out of bankruptcy. So they were divorced, I think, technically or getting divorced when Elisa met Larry and the rest is history. So we're going to flash forward back to 2002. Haley was with her mother. They were in the bright red Jaguar convertible, and she believed that they were going to the Scottsdale horse show when her mother said that they were gone, they were going to be in hiding, and that there was a warrant out for her arrest. She did not say it was for killing Larry. She said it was for kidnapping Haley all of those years ago. She explained to her that she had violated a custody agreement, and they were finally going to track them down. So they had to go on the run, and they also had to both use different names because Haley kept her name the first time Elisa changed hers from Lauren to. Elisa. And so now they both needed new names. And Elisa said that she was going to go by Shane Ivoroni. Oh, <laughs> getting exotic there. And Haley chose Penelope. So we've got Shane and Penelope Ivoroni on the run here. Penelope Ivoroni is a mouthful. <laughs> it's an interesting choice, but she's also 17 years old. Yeah. So she's like, that's a pretty like name. almost famous. And she's like, Penny. <laughs> yeah. So along their travels in this bright red convertible Jag, which is not exactly an inconspicuous getaway no. vehicle, Elisa as Shane managed to strike up a conversation with another Jaguar owner. And he liked what he saw with Elisa slash Shane and said, hey, I'm going to this casino. Why don't you come with me? She ended up coming with him like on a date, but he was winning big left and right. They went to another casino. He kept winning. So he's like, Shane, you're my lucky charm. Do you want to go to a golf tournament with me the next day? And she said, yes. So they were really on the precipice of homelessness when this happened. Apparently, they had even had to spend a night in a homeless shelter, which the author Carlton Smith said pretty much. I'm sure the only time that a brand new Jag has pulled up to a homeless shelter yeah. because the people needed to stay there. But this was a huge win for them because the guy ended up taking a liking to Shane. I think they had some sort of relationship and he offered to put Shane and Penelope, aka Lisa and Haley up in his vacation beachside condo in Destin, Florida for free. So win-win, now they're taken care of. So they move to Destin, and while they're there, Elisa as Shane managed to get a restaurant job, and then she, through people she met at the restaurant, managed to parlay it into another law firm job. So wow. she was actually getting settled. They had this beautiful apartment that looked over the ocean. She had a job in a law firm again, and Haley was really doing well. She made a whole group of friends. She actually had a boyfriend. She's having a great time. So it seemed like things were looking up for this Thelma and Louise meets Gilmore Girls duo. However, once again, Elisa could not stay on the straight and narrow, even when freedom was on the line. 
She ran up a large credit card bill on the furniture store owner who, unlike the other men in Elisa's life, did not take it lying down. He evicted Elisa and Haley, and he also called the law firm and told them that they had a thief employed there and that they should fire her. And he also called the police and gave the police the Jaguar's license plate number. Yikes. It's not clear to me whether he knew that she was running away from something or if he just thought she was a grifter and that the Jaguar was probably stolen. And he yep. was reporting it to the police because he's like, this lady's a con woman and I bet that Jaguar's going to come up if you search it. And they were like, oh, well, ding, ding, ding. It has, sir. In fact, that lady is an escaped murderer. Yeah, well, he wasn't the last guy to get hoodwinked by Elisa. She had Haley go stay at a friend's house and in her desperation, she convinced some guy that she knew through the restaurant who was a, I believe, a dry clean owner to let her stay the night with him. And before he woke up the next morning, she left him the jag, but she stole his truck and $600 and took off. Wow. Yeah. Haley was not involved in any of this scamming. She didn't even know what was going on. So it's not quite like this. But have you ever seen the movie Heartbreakers with Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt and Ray Liotta? Yes. The late, great Ray Liotta, RIP. This is totally that vibe, although Haley was not involved in any of this scammery. So she picked up Haley at like six in the morning. She was like, get your ass out here. We're going. We're on the road again. And Haley went with her, but she was mad this time. She's 17 years old. She's like, I am so tired of this. You have been doing this to me my entire life. I finally had a great group of friends. I finally had a boyfriend I liked. I finally had a life and you're doing it to me again. And I like cannot handle this. So they were headed towards Charleston, South Carolina. And the entire ride, Haley was just telling her mom like how she's affected her life, how miserable she is, how she never had anything and anything good or anything normal. And it's all her mom's fault. And they finally get into Charleston and her mother looks at her and she goes, you are completely right. I have screwed everything up. This is all my fault. This has nothing to do with you. I'm so sorry. And tomorrow I'm going to drive you back to Destin and I'm going to leave you with your friends. But before I do that, let's spend the night here in Charleston and I have to tell you the truth. And she then proceeded to tell Haley everything. She confessed everything about taking Haley and why they had to leave when she was a little girl, about her marriages, about Larry, including how she killed Larry with an overdose of horse tranquilizer. Now, she also told Haley that she had to do this to save her life because Larry was getting erratic and violent and abusive. And had she not struck first, he would have killed her. And okay. Haley very much does believe this to this day. What is a kid supposed to do, though? Of course she's supposed to believe it. Now, of course, on the other side, Cheryl said that he wasn't abusive. And, and, and I mean, Cheryl got him mostly when he was sober, though. And his kids said very vehemently that he was never abusive. So we have to understand that this is right down the family line here where it is a he said, she said. And that's why it kind of recalled the whole Amber Heard and Johnny Depp thing where there's very strong feelings on either side of this situation. But at the end of the day, only one person got murdered, which I think is important to remember. Yes, of course. 
Haley said that after this long confession, her mother seemed just totally vacant and empty, like she had just given up. And true to her word, for the first time ever, Elisa did drive Haley back to Destin. And she called a cab to take her to her friend's house from the beach. And Elisa then sat in the front seat of the truck and wrote an eight-page suicide note to Haley. And it was just a lot of apologizing for what she had put her through and encouraging her to live a different and better life than the one, obviously, Elisa slash Lauren had lived. And she said that she knew she was a coward and that Haley had made her promise she would not kill herself. She had sworn up and down and she's like, and I'm so sorry, I just can't do it. I can't live up to that promise. And she said that her plan was, I guess she had a little bit of marijuana. She was going to go sit on the beach. She was going to smoke the last of the marijuana And then she was going to swim out as far as she possibly could and swim until she couldn't even move her arms anymore. And then at that point, she'd be too far out to save herself and drown. That's brutal. Oh, my goodness. Does not seem like an easy way to go personally. Wow. Yeah. So when Haley got to her friend's house, the police were there and they wanted to know, of course, where her mother was. And Haley was very conflicted because she did not want to tell the police where her mother was, but she was very concerned for her safety at that point, knowing her mother's mental state was very poor. So she did tell them where to go and what beach to find her on and where she had last seen her and what truck she was driving. Okay. When the police got to the beach, Elisa was still on the beach smoking pot. So she had not enacted her plan yet. And they did at that point arrest her. Haley said on the 2020 episode that her feelings were horribly mixed. She was naturally quite relieved that her mother was still alive, but she felt guilty and devastated that she had turned her mother in and therefore contributed to her mother's worst nightmare happening, Uh, which was that she was caught. Poor girl. A lot of internalized guilt that she doesn't deserve. Yeah. In custody at a Florida sheriff's deputy's office, Elise spilled everything. She gave a full confession. She was like, the gig's up. I'm just going to tell you everything. Now, this was in direct contrast to Sarah had been interviewed, my goodness, like five, six, seven, maybe more times at this point. And every single time she was minimizing her role. She was denying she had ever seen Larry. Now she's saying, oh, I did see him. We got the wheelchair because he was so drunk that we had to wheel him to the car. Like she just kept changing her story and she kept saying she had nothing to do with it. But Elisa came out guns blazing. and it was like, I'm just going to be straight with you. I'm going to tell you everything. Larry was a great guy and a decent husband until he started drinking and drugging excessively. Then he became abusive, violent, erratic, scary, threatening. She had all of these stories about times that he threatened her. Haley said on the 2020 that she overheard Larry threatening her mother at one point saying, I'm going to kill Haley and then I'm going to set you up and make it look like you did it. Whoa. So yeah, it's not good. So Elisa tells them all of these things that Larry had done to her. And then she said she was just tired of being scared and that Larry was on a bunch of drugs, including Special K anyway. So she knew that she could just go into the horse trainer's veterinary bag and get some more. And she thought, why not just give him a little extra dose and see what happens? 
So she stole the horse tranquilizer by taking an empty Visine bottle and then she put a syringe in the tranquilizer and then used the syringe to fill up the Visine bottle with this incredibly potent horse tranquilizer. Like I said, it was 0.3 milligrams is a lethal dose. And she's got a whole Visine bottle full of it. She said then she dosed Larry at least three separate times over the fateful City of Industry horse show weekend. The police would later believe that maybe she dosed him with two different types of horse tranquilizer because the the xylazine is very, very, very lethal. It could have been something more like a Special K, even though their horse trainer didn't carry Special K, so a different one, um, potentially Ace, which would account for why he was so out of it for the horse show and the Olive Garden dinner. And then maybe she went back and got some more. And this, she happened to get the xylazine this time, which is way, 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 way worse. So she said then she dosed him a couple more times. She also claimed while she was talking to the police that it was Larry who had cleaned out all of the accounts and done all the embezzling so that he could afford drugs. That's what she said. Oh, my goodness. That, I'm not sure about the abuse, but that seems patently untrue because there was witnesses to what they were doing in the office and Larry was very rarely there. So it was 100% Sarah and Elisa who were up to all that funny business. In any case, she said that the horse tranquilizer murder plot was cooked up by her and Sarah, that it was Sarah's idea to kill him to begin with. And then they decided on an overdose. They said on the morning of September 11th, in the very, very early morning hours, they believed he was finally dead. I guess Elisa kept dropping more of the horse tranquilizer in his mouth, even after he was partially asleep. She would later say also that he, like at one point, he knew he was taking horse tranquilizer and she said that he chose to take it himself. Like he grabbed the Visine bottle and emptied it into his own mouth, which seems very unlikely um, given what this drug does to people. So in the early morning hours of September 11th, they, they think that he's finally passed away. So they have her go out and say that thing to Greg and then they go get the wheelchair They come back, they get him out of the hotel room, they transfer him into the truck, and they at that point go to Yosemite National Park to bury him there. So I'm not sure if anyone saw them transporting him in the wheelchair. Obviously, Debbie saw them leaving. It was like a big truck. There was a backseat in it, and it's a specially made truck. It was called a dually. I don't really know much about these types of trucks, but he was not visible in it. And in fact, the wheelchair and the shovels were only visible through the cab. So Larry wasn't visible. And I guess if somebody saw these two women wheeling this guy out, it could just seem like he was an elderly man or it just like he's in a wheelchair. You don't like if I saw somebody snoozing in a wheelchair going by, I probably wouldn't think anything of it I wouldn't think that he was dead and they had killed him I would you would win okay every time you see somebody sleeping in a wheelchair you're gonna be like oh they're just (laughs) transporting a dead body (laughs) suspect you know now I am now I probably am so that's what they did then they went to Yosemite and the plan was to bury him in Yosemite however when they arrived in Yosemite they realized that he was still alive oh my god 
Yeah. And there's conflicting stories between Elisa and Sarah at this point, too, where Sarah tried to say they didn't go to Yosemite at all, that she later changed her story. And Elisa said that Sarah wanted to bury him in Yosemite, even though he was still breathing, that she was going to leave him there no matter what. And Elisa was like, no, we can't do that and put him back in the car. Sarah very much denied that whole story. But we don't really know who was telling the truth here at all. In any case, what we do know and what was decided upon by both parties in their eventual confessions is that they ended up driving all the way back to Larry and Elisa's house. And at that point, they maintained that he was actually dead. He had finally expired and they didn't know what to do with him because they had to get back down to the horse show, which was outside of L.A. So they put him in the wine fridge. They took the wine and the racks out and then they shoved him, which was why he was in the fetal position and likely why he had that one injury to his back because they shoved him in the fridge. And then I guess Elisa went back down to the horse show and Sarah had to go check on him at some point and the door was popping open. So Sarah duct taped the refrigerator closed. Oh, God. Yeah. Then they left him there for three months until the heat was turned up by the police and Elisa and Sarah decided that they needed to move Larry's body and get rid of it once and for all. So they were already planning on going to Vegas on December 13th for the National Rodeo Show and they put Larry in the trunk of the Jaguar and went to Vegas. So Larry's in the trunk and they pull up to the Bellagio, which is where they're supposed to be staying. And naturally, it's a nice hotel. The doorman came out and went to open the trunk to get their bags. So Elisa jumped out of the car and managed to stop him, but they were so spooked. They said, you know what? Never mind. We um, forgot we have to go get something. And then they went to a motel and stayed there instead where there's clearly no doorman. And that night, Elisa went out by herself into the desert and with a shovel and with Larry's body and tried to bury him in the desert. But it was hard pan everywhere she tried to dig. She could only get a few inches down before it was almost rock solid. So she tried and tried for hours and she could not find a place where it was even possible to bury a body. So she left him in the trunk, went back to Vegas, went to this rodeo show. Then she and Sarah drove all the way back home to Northern California with him still in the trunk. At that point, she dug him a shallow grave in the vineyard, which was where he was eventually found. And she maintained that she did that alone. Sarah had no part in it. But Sarah did help clean the Jaguar and the fridge out. So at 2.30 in the morning on March 19th, Elisa, who signed her name as Lauren Jordan, provided a written statement to the police that everything I just said was true and that she and Sarah had purposely killed Larry and they had doubled down by knowing he was dying and not stopping to get him medical attention. And she said that she alone was the one who disposed of his corpse. 
In California, Sarah Dutra was confronted with Elisa's confession, and she broke down at that point. She claimed that she had never planned to kill Larry. She very much denied that it was her idea to kill Larry. She also denied that she had participated in getting the drugs, drugging Larry, or disposing of his remains, some of which seems true because Elisa said she was the one who stole the drugs and she was the one who disposed of his remains. However, it just did seem like she was still not telling the complete truth pretty much ever because even in that interview where she was faced with Elisa's confession, she was still changing her story. Like the Yosemite thing didn't happen, then it did happen, but it happened this way and then it happened a totally different way. So she was still lying. And at that point, both Sarah and Elisa were charged with the first-degree murder of Larry McNabney. Whoa. So Elisa was actually transferred back to her hometown jail back in Brooksville so that the authorities could clear her outstanding warrants in order to extradite her to California because she had the warrants related to her original arrest back a decade earlier. Her mother, father, siblings... And nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles apparently all came to visit her while she was in jail. And it was a very bittersweet reunion because I cannot imagine not seeing my child for nearly a decade. And then when I do, they're in jail for murder. It's not ideal. It's not ideal. And I mean, by all accounts, they were really good parents who worked their asses off and tried really hard to help her no matter what. So, I mean, this is just devastating. After the visits, Elisa sent a letter to her family attorney, Tom Hogan, who was the same guy who had tried to help her out of her many jams when she was younger and who had been working with that family forever and is also on the 2020. On March 29th, 2002, she wrote a letter telling Hogan about several people that she believed who lived in Reno and California who could substantiate her claims that Larry had abused her. But then she said, Tom, I think we both know that it doesn't matter what kind of man Larry was. We murdered him. Of course, I should spend the rest of my life in prison. Sarah should too. I wish I could change what happened, but I can't. She told Hogan that apparently years earlier, she had had a crush on him and that she had wished she had, you know, stayed around her hometown instead of what she had done. And then she asked him if he would watch over Haley and even potentially become her guardian if necessary. She wrote, I only want Haley protected. Will you try to make her understand that I cannot put her through having a mother in prison for life or worse, a mother on death row? It would be so unfair to her to have to carry that burden. Then she turned to practical matters. The jail, she said, was not doing what it was supposed to do. It wasn't keeping her under close observation. She said that she and Larry had handled several tort cases involving deaths in prison in Nevada and that the cap on governmental liability was 50 grand. But she did not believe that the CCA, which was the private corrections company that owned the prison she was in, would be included in the governmental cause. So she is like, if they screw something up, you can probably sue them for way more than 50000 She goes, I'm not strong enough to face all of this. I've tried to dig deep into myself and it isn't working. There's nothing left. I don't want to be a burden to my mother and father anymore. And then she gave a little bit more specific information on what the prison was supposed to be doing for her. She was supposed to be observed every 15 minutes. She was supposed to shower daily and that wasn't happening. There was long stretches where she was going unnoticed. And she closed by thanking Hogan for everything he had done for her over the years. P.S. She wrote, please tell my parents that I love them. Later that same night, she tore her bedsheets into strips 
braided them together into a rope. And after threading them through a vent, she placed the noose around her neck and hung herself. Oh, God. Lauren Sims Jordan Rettelsberger McNabney was not discovered for a very long time, much longer than it should have taken because she was right in her letter. When she was, she was rushed to the hospital, but she died the next day on Easter Sunday. So this was naturally devastating to Haley. She said, my world ended when my mother died. What do you do when your whole life has revolved around keeping this person safe and you couldn't even keep her safe from herself? Sarah Dutra's trial began in California on January 6, 2003 which is so weird. January 6th was actually Larry and Elisa's wedding anniversary. Yeah. It was both a blessing and a curse that Elisa had passed away for Sarah. The blessing was that nobody can testify against her or say anything else. The curse was in the fact that they probably would have given Sarah a pretty good deal to nail down Elisa. So that was out the window. Sarah's defense was that she was a naive young girl caught up in the glitz and glamour of designer shopping sprees, luxury cars, and fancy horse shows, that she was a innocent victim in an evil con woman's dark schemes. Okay, so her attorney, there's a clip of him speaking to the press on the 2020 episode, and I cannot believe that the words came out of this man's mouth. He said, She's just like a little baby. You want to grab a baby blanket and put it around her. She's just a helpless little thing. Is this 1920? What What is that? What is a grown man talking about here? Anyway, they like really made her look real innocent. She was dressed very conservatively. She wore not a stick of makeup. She had like big wide eyes the whole time she was in trial. And apparently the shtick must have worked for at least one juror because the jury ended up deliberating for three whole days. Now, there were six men and six women on the jury. And the first thing they had to decide on was if they were going to convict her on first degree murder. Now, the people who wanted to convict versus the people who didn't want to convict was almost directly split down the gender line there. Andy, can you guess who wanted to convict and who wanted not to convict? The women wanted to convict. Bingo. You are indeed correct. Yeah. So the women were like, oh, she's guilty as shit. And the men were like, no, she's a little baby. She's a little baby. <laughs> yeah. And so they decided they were like, we're not getting anywhere with this. We're we're disagreeing about it. So let's let's say, nope, first degree is out. So let's look at second degree. And now at this point, most of the men agreed that she should be convicted of secondary murder. She had admitted on the stand like that she duct taped him into the refrigerator, that she was along for the ride, that at any point she could have stopped and called 911. She could have asked for medical attention. They know all this. And so all of the men except for one switch now to guilty. But that one guy was a total holdout. And they were going to face a potential hung jury in a mistrial. And so they ended up negotiating down to voluntary manslaughter. Okay. So she was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter as well as a count of accessory after the fact and sentenced to 11 years in prison. Wow. Yeah. She got out. 
she did get out. She was released in 2011 after serving 85% of her sentence. And she apparently did a lot of art in jail. She was very well received by the other people, all good behavior. And when she was released to her hometown of Vacaville, they say that she has maintained a very, very low profile. She has never reoffended. I mean, maybe she really was an innocent girl brought into a dark scheme. She did tell the police when they asked her why she didn't go to the police. Why didn't she call 911? Why? Not even why when she didn't stop it, but why didn't she when she was away from Elisa, say, hey, I got to go to the police and tell you guys something happened and I couldn't stop it. And she, I mean, she was honest about this. She said, I was too scared about what was going to happen to me if I told the police. Like she was cognizant that she wasn't going to get out of this scot-free. And so she was willing to go along with it in order to not get in trouble. And that actually rings true (laughs) to me. Somebody who's immature and is 21 years old is like, yeah, of course I didn't go to you guys because I would be in this situation and I didn't yeah. want that. <laughs> yeah. So she is now 41 years old and out there somewhere and I hope she stays on the straight and narrow. Haley was completely lost after her mother's death. She eventually went home to her mother's hometown in Florida and reconnected with her family, but it was not easy and it wasn't exactly a comfortable reunion because she didn't know who these people were. It had been nearly a decade. She had left as a small child. So it was a very uh, bizarre and painful time in Haley's life. But despite the fact that she had such a roller coaster of a childhood and then this devastating event with her mother, she managed to build such a wonderful life for herself and a life that anyone would be proud of. She got her master's degree. She became a critical care nurse. She raised two beautiful children. And now she is applying to law school. So way to go, Haley. She hopes someday to open a center for abused women. And at the end of the 2020, her big message that she wanted to say was that it doesn't matter who you are. You don't have to stay in a situation where you don't feel safe. And I think that between the lines was because she feels like because her mother was running away from something and because she had done bad things in her life, she felt like she wasn't entitled to leave or able to leave. And obviously this entire situation could have been avoided if she had felt like she was able to leave Larry when she did. So... Our heart goes out to obviously everybody involved in this tragic situation, especially Larry's children and and kids too. This is a crazy, crazy case. And there were so many victims in it. So many. But I do, to end this on a note, which is why I talked about Patreon earlier, we do have a Wikipedia fun fact, if you want to give me that. Wikipedia fun fact. There is a 2005 Lifetime movie inspired by this case called Lies My Mother Told Me, starring Jolie Richardson as Lauren Sims and Hayden Panettiere as Haley. Oh, my God. So I am thinking we have to watch this for the watch party. Totally. Yay. I have been angling for a Lifetime movie. And when I got to the Wikipedia about this case, I was like, it's the one. I've never seen it. I don't know anything about it, but I know that it's going to be amazing. So we will let you. 
Isn't that great? So we'll definitely let you patrons know. Obviously, June is coming to a close soon. So we will figure out a time and let you know very shortly. In conclusion, I think we should have like a three strikes and you're out rule with marriages. Like if you bomb the third one, you just, you know, be with your next person forever, like Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, but don't get married. Just three strikes, you're out. I concur. I concur. Also, it's we learned that there's really no such thing as a free lunch or a free bag or free designer clothes, free BMW, free BMW. There's just no such thing. Nope. There's a price you got to pay for that. And hopefully it's not killing the boss lady's husband. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love. So no one falls down an inverted K-hole. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. 